0: And we're live! We are live. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Strong Tea. I'm Becky. I'm Katie. And together we are Strong Tea. Um, so today we are launching our mini-series into death, grief and loss. We are going to do a number of episodes um, under the Strong Tea banner uh, talking about death, loss and grief. Funnily enough, because that's what it's called. Um, so, it is going to get quite deep. Um, we will put trigger warnings where we need to. Um, but yeah, this this is hopefully going to be a very interesting and informative series.
1: It certainly is.
0: Excellent. What are we drinking today?
1: Well, Jane,
2: let's go first. What are you drinking? Uh, I'm a coffee girl. Sorry, ladies. I'm, yeah, I'm all about the coffee. It would ideally be a latte, but it's not. It is a, a homebrew, just decaffeinated white with one sweetener what going
1: with the decaf to keep oh, cognitive yeah, yeah i like it nice. um i um i've got oh i've gone for a new one today i have gone for a mold cider tea by a company called bird and blend and uh, aromatic winter spices it's actually from their christmas range don't judge me but they don't go out of dates so it's fine and it's got apple ginger rose hip hibiscus cinnamon and cloves in it
0: mm. blimey
1: I know it smells like Christmas. Okay. But what does it taste like? I love the smell of these things. I hate the taste. Okay, now, hold on. Yep. Nice. Christmassy. Mm.
0: And it's spring, so that's a good start.
1: <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm just really messing with my brain. I really enjoy doing that. What are you drinking?
0: Uh, I've gone for a pack of love, which has got a touch of rose, chamomile and lavender. And yeah, I think I reviewed this before and called it delightful and it's still delightful it's still lovely yeah does it taste a little bit sweet it tastes like perfume yeah it's, Ooh. um but a nice perfume i met i didn't sell that well did i wow no okay. no. no it's yeah <laughs>
1: Anyway we'll move on from that. Um, (laughs) um, Which leads me to um, we're going to introduce our coffee drinker today and it's the lovely Jane Greyer. Now I met Jane probably seven or eight years ago at a networking event in Herefordshire and um, Jane is a celebrant Um, and for those of you who don't know I will get her to Explain it in a little bit more detail. She's probably articulates it better than I do. But um, a celebrate a celebrant normally um, works with people and provides ceremonies for different um, life elements, so weddings, funerals, all sorts of different things, celebrations of life. And as soon as I met Jane, I said instantly, "You're gonna, you're gonna." Sp- speak at my wedding you're gonna perform my wedding and um, Jane has waited very patiently for me to find the right man Um, and when she did it was an absolute blast so um, we've got Jane uh, on today to talk like Vicky said um, as part of our mini-series on grief and death so today we are going to be discussing death and dying so Jane take it away tell us a little bit more about yourself and about um, the, what would you call it, I suppose, the organisation that you've put together called the Death Cafe in Abergavenny. Tell us
2: a little bit about that. Uh, In fairness, it's not my organisation. So the Death Cafe is a worldwide movement that was started by a a couple uh, in the UK who wanted to encourage conversations to happen about death and dying, recognising that this is the greatest taboo that still exists, that people for some bizarre reason, think it's not going to affect them, or that if they start talking about it, it's going to make it happen. Um, And it's the area of life that absolutely impacts on every single one of us at some point, either with our own death, or with the death of somebody that we love. Uh, And yet, we don't talk about it. So the Death Cafe movement exists all over the world. and currently, I mean, it's been happening on Zoom a lot of the time for the last couple of years, whereas my, my first meeting started face-to-face. And they're an opportunity for people to talk openly about death and dying from whatever angle they wish. Uh, so there's no agenda. That's one of the things you have to sign up to. There's no set agenda. You don't have speakers. You don't have pre-arranged things. It's entirely formed around the people that come on the night uh, or the day, whatever time it is that you're doing it. Uh, the, the cafe bit is normally reflects the fact that it's ha- it happens in a place that's informal, that you've got tables, you can have refreshments. Quite often there's cake, I've never managed cake. Um, but and, and online, that's much trickier, doing cake. But there's, <laughs> yeah, it's that kind of opening up that openness, I suppose, for people to just have conversations without fear of judgment, without fear of anybody jumping in and saying, oh, I can't do this, or you shouldn't do that, or that's, you know, you're wrong. There's mm-hmm. no right or wrong. It, it's everybody, It's all about people's experience, people's feelings, people's thoughts, uh, and what direction they want it to go in. Wow. So what
0: are the most common questions or themes that come up at the Death Cafe? Um,
2: well, the first one that normally happens before the Death Cafe, and uh, having put, the, put out a, a post about my, uh, m- my next meeting in the last couple of days, it's happened phenomenally in the last overnight. It's just been mad. Um, so you get people kind of going, oh, Why would you want to talk about death? That's a horrible thing to talk about. Or, and then secondly, oh, I like the idea, but why call it the death cafe? That's awful. Um, And so that starts off as being the first starting point, the recognition that the reason it's called death cafe is to normalize and to regain, if you like, those key words that people tend to avoid using. People don't say that somebody's died. They say they've passed, they've passed on. They've lost them. There are lots of euphemisms that we now use to disguise what is a very natural part of life, and which has given it a much bigger um, fear factor, if you like, uh, a scare factor for people. So uh, quite often there's questions around what is, you know, why it's called the death cafe. When you get through that lot, <laughs> then uh, there are often conversations around funerals. What you can do, what you can't do. Uh, disposal of human remains is a big thing, uh, and what people think you can do. Uh, because they're quite often, oh, I, you know, you always said you wanted to be buried down the bottom of the garden, but I said, you can't do that. Well, you can, you can. If you want to do that, you can, but you do need to do a survey uh, to check on the, the direction of any water that moves underground, uh, because you can't uh, plant somebody where there's there's water that's gonna go into uh, a main, main uh, water uh, system for, for people to drink from or whatever. That's not appropriate, uh, but you also need to record it. So, you know, the, part, the, the important thing is people know where that person has ended up. Uh, and one of the things, you know, it happens more rurally. So if you happen to be a farmer, then you may well have more land and you may well have an area where your family uh, are, are then buried. And it's very much part of their rural life. But um, if it's in your back garden, then you need to be aware of the fact it may devalue your property because the next person that comes and moves into the house may not want your husband, your mother, your whatever, uh, buried in their back garden. So it it, it is something you can do, but you need to look into the reasons why. Uh, And hence, it's it's easier with scattering or something like that. Uh, So yeah, uh, there's quite often uh, a large part for new people around um, what you can do with, with people, you know, with bodies, with with ashes, where you can go, what the legalities are around it. It sounds like with no uh,
1: with no fixed agenda that it's a really, a really varied. I suppose you never know what you're going to get asked. But I suppose when you talk about the taboo of death, I think you're right. You know, it's it's funny because every time my parents have tried to broach the subject with me, and they say, right. You know, I'm going to talk to you about the will, and I'm like, nope, just tell me where you put it, and I'll deal with it. You know, later. And I, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to entertain that fact. But of course, we all know it's coming. So, where do you think the taboo of talking about death originates from? Have we, have we always been like this? Is
2: it, is it a very British thing? What, what's, what's it all about? I, I blame Queen Queen Victoria. I think um, <laughs> we'll give it. We'll give all the blame to her. I think pre that point, at the point where medical professions did what they could, but there wasn't a great deal uh, that could be done to extend life, um, and where death was a very much a, an everyday part of life. So if you managed to get born and stay alive, you were doing well. So many children died at birth or died in the near days afterwards. If you managed to get to your Fifth birthday, you're doing amazingly. And so all the milestones, things that we now very often take for granted, um, it was much more of a factor that, that you, know, you had 13 children because hopefully six of them would stay alive. And you might have children to be able to look after you when you were older, you know, because your, your old age was about 50, it wasn't, wasn't 80. Um, but I think as the medical pro- profession has progressed, And there's been more interventions now and more ways of people being kept alive for longer um, through medical, through medicines, through operations, through recognitions of things that lifestyle changes, all that kind of stuff, Um, then it's become something that's become professionalised, if you like. So whereas also at the point where somebody died, the family Took control of what was going on along with the whole of the community. So, your wise woman, who was probably the midwife of the village as well, came down and helped you to lay out the body and did all of the preparation of the body with the family because that was her experience, quite likely to be a a single lady. Um, But, you know, so she had that input. The family, you know, you were laid out in your front room. That's the purpose of the front room. It was kept for that, that or meeting the vicar. Uh, And it was, you know, you had people came in to take care of you. So people brought in food, people brought in drinks, people made sure that you didn't have to be doing anything, that you were being looked after. um, And they spent time with your loved one. So the part of that, there there is an argument to say that the the wake, the the concept of the wake came from an awakening. So at a point where having a lot of noise, having a lot of laughter and joking and, and noise going on in the room with the person who had died would make sure that they were definitely dead. There were certainly some, uh, some illnesses that kind of echoed. Um, it, could, it could appear that somebody had actually died when they, they hadn't. And so the awakening uh, was a way of making sure that person had actually died. Um, if not, then they would be woken up by everything that was going on in the room around them, is the logic there. Um, crumbs, where did I get to that? So yes, and there is, there's also the, the professionalism of the, uh, the roles of, of funeral directors, you know, so going from undertakers, which were then, you know, they've now become funeral directors, and I think through the whole of Queen Victoria's mourning, and that, it all seems to happen around that, around that time, that we've kind of outsourced uh, the care of our loved ones when they've died to mm-hmm. other people. So it doesn't happen at home very often now. You've got a longer wait, whereas it would have been, you know, happened the next day, the day after, uh, in in days gone by. Now it's likely to be a, a couple of weeks at least. Um, so therefore, there are different things that need to happen. You know, we've got centrally heated houses, so that's not good uh, in respect of looking after a uh, you know, body. Um, so, there, and there's, so there are lots of different parts of it, but I think it's in the last 100 and... 120 years or so really that we've created this distance between us and death and it's become something that isn't normal that is is a worry that is a is um, some kind of retribution uh, for, you know but no it's part of life but we we've kind of lost that connection that it is a part of life not separate to life we've almost
0: protected ourselves we, we've I think as you're saying, as you were talking, in my head I was saying we we've almost convinced ourselves it's more civilized not to kind of get involved with you know the body and to, but as you were saying before, you know pre Queen Victoria there was very much a community and village feel in not only mourning but the whole death experience as well and that seems to have been lost lost too. But I mean I, I follow quite a few um, morbid accounts and so on and one of them is is all about Victorian photography and pre-Victoria there were lots of um photos being taken of the dead you know family members taking pictures of their dead loved ones and family portraits and so on and people would would take keepsakes that could be quite considered quite taboo and macabre things like hair cuttings or and you know back then that was completely normal and yet now that's almost you know a voyeuristic it's taboo it's it's macabre it's and you, you, how has that happened?
2: Yes, it's an interesting thing that we become more civilized in theory by distancing ourselves from being human, you know, so it, it, and making it as if there's something other, you know, some kind of gods that live forever. You know, that, that's not real, realistic. Yeah, And you look across the world and you look at different religions and different, yeah, different cultures, and they've got very different ways of dealing with death. With, with death. Um, and that whole concept of what happens after you know, uh, and I think it probably ties into uh, changing the religion in, in this country. So less uh, people actively going to church, whereas that was always a thing. And therefore, there was a set way um, for many years. That was a, there was a set way of, of grieving. There was a set way of what, what happened when somebody died. There was a set process uh, because that doesn't exist uh, so strongly anymore. Then quite often, people are a little bit floundering as, as to what they should now do. Because we're we don't like to get it wrong. We don't like to be outside the. I was going to say outside the box, but I'll avoid that one. Uh, outside the norm, um, we want to be. What, what will the neighbours say well, if I do that? What will the neighbours say? You know. Um, so making sure things are done right, and particularly around death, uh, but there's a big concern. And you're so right. You know, it used to be as soon as somebody died in the village, then all the curtains would be shut. You know, at the point where the, that person was being taken to the churchyard, then you know, then the, 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 court, the curtains all along the route would be closed, you know, that people would stand with their, their caps off and their heads bowed, showing a moment of respect. Um, I can remember seeing somebody actually going, so, so obviously one of the things I do is create funerals, and going, travelling in a hearse to a particular um, crematorium and seeing a gentleman that was working at, at the site take his hat off and stand as we were driving past. And that was the first time I had seen that for a very, very long time. And it was incredibly moving because it was just that moment of uh, connection with another human being, that this is something that happens to all of us. And this is my way of showing respect to you, the family, to you, the person, and to give you this moment of my time. It was, uh, yeah, I think incredibly moving. And that's happened more during COVID where people haven't been able to attend funerals as much. Um, so, you have had people lining streets, standing on their doorsteps, putting candles in their window, doing things that are more communal, if you like, because they haven't been able to go to the event. You know, they, they, they've been trying to find another way to show their respect. Uh, yeah. And, but I think across the world, people do such different things um, that some of them are, are quite extreme, you know, like the, the year after year, bringing their loved one back in. To sit at the table, uh, or you know, th- th- which is an interesting one. It takes it goes too far for me. I'm not comfortable with it. But that's not my culture. You know, that's not my choice. Um, but I think we definitely created this distance, uh, and to see, and we see death as being a failure. You know, which is that means everybody then fails. <laughs> do Do you think it's because you know we talk about the different
1: religions and different cultures and you know we have many many different cultures in this country um and certain religions um and beliefs have very set ways that they deal with things um uk i'm guessing is predominantly christian um for people who follow a faith um even like even christians don't have a set way of doing things when it comes to that and like you know jewish Muslim you know though you know there's no set formal this is what happens on this day this is what happens on this day and then you've got the people who are agnostic the people who are atheist you know what do you think it's do you think death is such a fearful concept because it's fear of the unknown there's no set organized right okay we're gonna have five days where we do this we all dress in black we have the family round we're embraced we remember we do this we don't have that it's kind of very much an open book and i think it's that fear of what comes next What you know what happens we're just sort of left that person's gone what do we do do you think it's the fear of the unknown rather than the fear of the death itself
2: yeah, it's always interesting so you get two camps with the death cafe i suppose where people that are afraid of their own death but that tends not to be the what happens after that tends to be the process of dying mm-hmm. and not wanting to die in pain, not wanting to die alone, not wanting to die uh, and lose their respect, you mm-hmm. know, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, then it, you, the other side of that is then people who are fearful of the death of someone around them, because then you're the person that's left and wanting to know where they have gone, what has happened to them, you know, yeah. and that's where you're, if you have a faith, that's, that's where your faith fills that gap if you like that they give you whether you choose to believe it or not believe it is is up to you but with every faith there is a an explanation of what happens after somebody dies and that's for the person that's left that gives you if you believe that faith that gives you reassurance or it gives you a route or it gives you a plan um whereas if you don't have that then you're left with You're left with a big question, aren't you? And so either then people create something for themselves, or they you know they they look around for what what is out there. What what do people say happens? And then you know bring something together for themselves from that because it, it's yeah. There's a small percentage of people I think who would kind of go at the the point where somebody dies. That's it. That's the end. Nothing more. You're purely here for that length of time for the length of time of your life. And that's it nothing more goes on after that there's a percentage but a lot of people don't like that concept yeah yeah
1: i have got um i know i know a couple that were together for I think they were together for close close from 40 years and um the husband got very very ill and uh, they told him it was a terminal diagnosis and from that point he had about six months And during that time, him and his wife never once discussed what came next. So when he died, she was sort of like, right, well, what do I do now? Whereas, you know, I look at my parents and it's something that they talk about in terms, you know, they don't chat about it every day over dinner. But, you know, it is a a sort of factual concept for them. It's like, well, one of us is going to go before the other. So what happens to that person? What happens when that person's left? It seems, I mean, I I think I'd probably, even though I've suffered severe loss, I don't think I could deal with that conversation. But I think if I was forced to have it and knowing it was going to happen rather than, you know, it'll happen at some point. It's like, right, this is a terminal diagnosis is going to happen within the next X number of months. You'd think it would force people to have
2: that conversation, wouldn't you? I think there are two sides to that. So one is what happens to the person that's got that's died and yes. the other is what happens to the person that's left. Um, and they're two different things in some ways, you know, because the one, the one that's left has to then work out how to carry on living their life when they are now not many things that they were before. Yes. Uh, and then when you are constantly coming up against things that you should have been doing together that you'd plan to do together. So whether, you know, from retirement to have grandchildren to weddings to, yeah, everything is yeah. something that you should have been doing together. Um, and quite often people don't have a conversation about either and you, yeah, in some ways you would think that if you if you knew you had a finite amount of time would you live your life differently? But then we all know we've got a finite amount of time <laughs> but we just push it off because we think it's not it'll never happen at this point. I do funerals for people of all ages. Yeah. So I know it happens at all ages. The hardest ones in some way, well, the hardest ones are, are children. Uh, but you know, then after that, it's those, is those people that are my age. Because mm-hmm. you kind of go, it does bring it home. You kind of go, this could happen at any moment. This does happen at any moment. Yeah. It's not that none of us have got a, a, a divine right to carry on living, you know? And we never know what's going to happen. And yet we still don't have that attitude to living that enables us to have those conversations to really make the most I think yeah because we, we tend to live in the future or in the past it's very hard to live in the present
0: yeah do you think the people who are say more in tune with their mortality perhaps are the happiest because they they obviously know like you said they know they're on finite time but those that really know that you know there is an end to all this so you know let's get living do you, do you think those are the
2: happiest I think to have, to have a conversation with yourself um, around what you think death means uh, is really important because otherwise it's constantly there as a fear. So you may not be thinking about it all the time, but it's constantly there at the back. Whereas at the point where you have come to a conclusion for yourself what that is, where you've had put some thought into what ideally would you want your death to be like? No, we can't necessarily always have what we think is the ideal death, but uh, to actually have a think about what that would be, to have a think about what would you want, you know, the, your partner, what would you want your partner to do afterwards? Yeah, and some people kind of go, well, I'd really want them. I know, you know, I, I, you know, I have experience of couples who have picked out somebody, the next partner. I think when I've died, you <laughs> should have a relationship with so-and-so because you'd be wow. really good for each other. Wow. And you kind of go, wow, that is, that is a wow, isn't it? Because you think, yeah. how selfless is that in some ways? Uh, <laughs> I tell my um, husband, I'm like, don't you go meeting anyone else if I die.
1: Don't you even look at I anyone. I will haunt you. I will <laughs> haunt you. <laughs> and that's the other
2: reaction. <laughs> yeah. So you've got to, you know, there's a big gulf in between of of, uh, of what, you know, I, I, I've i got friends who kind of go, you know, one friend when her husband died, they'd had they'd had all of these conversations and they they said he knew he he knew that I would be with somebody else shortly afterwards and that's nothing to do with our relationship you know uh what we meant to each other and what we will continue to mean to each other lifetime after lifetime they have a belief in the eternity of life um so but he knows I just don't like being on my own so why would he wish me to be on my own yeah to go through this next stage of life on my own when when he knows how difficult I would find that. So yeah. it's it's putting yourself, taking yourself out of your shoes, if you like, and putting yourself in the other person's shoes. What 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 do they what are they gonna need?
0: Yeah. It's interesting because I had um, obviously in the build up to this episode I was I was talking to to my other half about, you know, what what do you want when you die? And oh empty vessel, just dump me in the sea or do whatever you want. It's not going to be me anymore. And, oh, okay, what do you want? I would love a lovely headstone that's either got a big rainbow on it or tells a really intriguing story or makes someone smile. And I kind of started thinking, because I love going through graveyards and just seeing the stones and just learning a bit about people that you've never met before, but you can learn a lot from, you know, just a few simple words on a headstone. And I kind of thought, is is that me coming to terms with mortality and that I just don't want to be forgotten? Is that what all this is about? But it kind of started that conversation in my head. But as you said, Jane, I was quickly kind of, yeah, let's let's close that door just for a little bit longer. And, yeah, you know, but, <laughs> no, it's interesting how when you start to really consider what you want to leave behind and what you want in death, it, it can open up quite a lot of your personality and what you do want.
2: Yeah, I think it's fascinating I think it's fascinating to to unlock some of those doors in ourselves uh, and to, to yeah I don't think you want to hang around you there all day every day that's not that's not living this life either uh, but there are, there are definitely points where it's really important so you know quite often in the group we'll have people that have got children who live a long way away or in different countries or whatever and it's like well what do I do you know at the point that, that I die what do I do so well what do you have to get in place before that You know, you you need to have conversations and to actually spend a little bit of time about what you would be prepared to put up with in terms of treatment or at what point you would want treatment to stop. You know, Um, there is always a point where you can say no more. But if you're not in a place yourself to do that, then who have you got that can say that for you and kind of go, she really wouldn't want to keep being resuscitated if she hasn't got the quality of life and she didn't want that. You know, so putting into place uh, the legal things that you can now do around having somebody to, to speak for you at that point. It's quite hard. Uh, it's quite hard to into visual, visualize yourself uh, at different points of illness, if you like. And, and you can't be sure. You can't kind of go, oh, I definitely know that I wouldn't want this to happen. You might think differently at mm-hmm. that point in time uh, when that's now a reality, because you may kind of go, well, actually, what I thought would be a hopeless um, version of life, when I was looking at it when I was in my twenties, actually now I'm in it. Yes, I'm limited on what I can do, but I can still enjoy these things. I can still enjoy those. So it is something that needs uh, reviewing. It's not, a, it's not something you make a decision on then you set. It's something that we need to review. Hence, you know, the whole thing with wills, with funeral ideas, with um, end of life planning, is something to review as and when, uh, as circumstances change. You know, and as people change, because you can set up somebody to to have a position to support you, and then fall out with them. You don't want that person then to be the person that's uh, you're responsible for saying yay nay to your to medical treatment or whatever. Um, but it, it, there are big questions around the, what happens with people dying now, because people aren't a lot of the time aren't allowed to just die. <laughs> it's it's there's intervention after intervention after intervention. Um, And it's very hard to not go down that route. And if you're the person that's looking after, you know, as opposed to the person who's in the process of dying, then that is really difficult to actually be able to stand up and kind of go, no, I don't think she would want this. You know, I think enough is enough. As opposed to keep going, do everything you can, do everything you can, regardless of what the quality of life is for that person and what the quality of death is like for that person. Because we can make death really difficult for people not letting them go, if you like. Do you think
1: it's more about to talk about death for people? You know, if people are maybe, you know, have someone who's been diagnosed terminally or, you know, they have a grandparent that's coming, you know, later on in life, I'm not saying coming to the end of their life, but coming, you know, getting, getting on in life. Do you think it's easier to break it down? Um, because obviously death seems like a, such a huge concept, to deal with do you think part of the challenge is actually breaking it down into like you have said end of life planning like the factual side of things because a lot of people you know stray away I know Vicky and I had conversations before about the emotional side of things and about you know difficult conversations at the end and you don't want to upset people and you don't want that side of it is there sort of a practical element that, that is easier to sort of take on and say, right, OK, you know, we know this is going to happen, so let's sit down and deal with this. Let's put the emotions in a box and we'll see what comes out later. But we really need to talk about this from a practical point of view. Do you think it's breaking it down that's the challenge?
2: I think definitely having bite-sized pieces. Yeah, you know, it's, it is an elephant. You're trying to eat an elephant when you're trying to talk about death in the same way that if you try and talk about life, it's like, well, where do you start? You know, because mm-hmm. it's the same. It's as, it's as vast as talk, like having a conversation about life. You know? So you're talking to your baby about what they're going to do when they're 18, when they're 21. when they're, You can't do it. It's the same kind of vastness with death. Uh, and I think, yeah, there are definitely, it's easier to talk about practicalities than it is to talk about uh, emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can't know. You don't know how you're going to react to something. Uh, it, it's so dependent on, on on so many different things. What's going on for you at that point in time? What's going on for the, in the world around you? All of that will have an impact on the, the way that you react in that moment or the emotions, the the, the ordering of the emotions that you feel or the, the journey that you go through. Uh, but it's really important to allow, if somebody raises the question or raises the, the conversation to allow that person to have that conversation. So for your for your mum and dad to kind of go, right, okay, what is it you want to talk about? Yeah. It's not going to make them die any quicker.
1: <laughs> it does it, it's the reality. It's that yeah. snatching of the reality and you're mm. like, no,
2: no, no, I'm not there yet, no. Yeah. But-, but it is, yeah, the reality is that it happens to each and every one of us. Yeah. I mean, I can remember <laughs> a conversation with my parents when I was about uh, 12, maybe. I sat around the Sunday table, and they, they were about to go on holiday together for the first time together without us. Uh, I was going to stay with some friends, um, and my sisters were staying in the house on their own. And uh, my dad suddenly coming out with, um, so if anything should happen, this is where the will is, and this is what you need to do with this, and this is what you need to do with this, and go and see so-and-so, and they will sort out getting rid of these. And that, so see, there's a say to that, you've got to do this with that, and not, you know, that. And I was there kind of going, what on earth? What on earth? totally flummoxed by the whole thing and then on on their journey back their plane um, had to do an emergency landing because one of the engines caught fire so by which time I was going completely beside myself you know with the the fact that they obviously weren't coming back and they must have known this that's hence all this conversation Um, so I can identify with the the panic that can set in uh, Mm -hmm. when the the subject's brought up Uh, so that's maybe not the way to do it Uh, but it is to actually kind of go look I want to have a conversation at some point about What I'd like for my funeral, or where you can find the stuff to do, because you don't really need to know the ins and outs of every bank account at this point, but you do need to know where to find the information. Yeah, you do need to have some idea about, yeah, I would really prefer not to be. You know, to be in this place i would like i would prefer if possible to die at home or to die in a hospice or to die in a hospital i don't want to die at home because i want that to be i don't want to be that that, that place for your mum where i died or whatever yeah. um so it's at the point where somebody raises the subject to be open enough to kind of go okay big deep breath let's see how it goes it hasn't got to be traumatic it hasn't got to be upsetting it may be emotional it may not be but it can also be I spend a lot of time with my families when I'm when I'm arranging funerals laughing Mm -hmm. because we're going we're talking about all kinds of different things that have happened in in their loved one's life and their lives together and what they would have wanted and what they'd be thinking at this point and whether they'd like like me to turn up in steampunk gear because yeah she'd have loved that but maybe we won't (laughs) Um, you know so you end up with lots of there can be a lot of laughter and it frees you it really does take a weight off because mm-hmm. now you've done that conversation. You haven't got to go back and revisit every, every week because you've done it. You mm-hmm. know basically what they would want.
0: It's mm. so, like um, death has been one of the things that has worried me. It's been one of those scary things in Huji Tapu for, for me as well. Um, and I heard this story and it changed quite a lot for me. And I can't remember where I heard it and I'm probably going to get it wrong. But I think it was um, Steve Jobs, so the the founder of Apple, when he was passing and his family were all around and they was, oh, are you okay? What's it it like? And apparently his final words were, oh, wow. And then he died. And just hearing that story alone was kind of, oh, okay. That's completely blown my preconception of what death is, that moment of death is. So I kind of what have been your experiences of death and that kind of so we can kind of d- debunk and d- dismiss any fears or concerns, because obviously this is something that comes up at the death cafe quite a lot as well. I'm imagining.
2: Yeah, I would love to be able to say that everyone dies a beautiful death, mm-hmm. uh, but they don't. I would love to be able to say that it's always calm, that it's always a moment of realization and relaxation and everything suddenly gentle, and, but it's not. And part of that is because we have a lot of medical interventions. Uh, and part of that is because there's pain involved. So pain management is hugely important. Um, and the experience is different for every person and the relationship that they have with that person that's dying. Um, so, some of the best ones have been that point where uh, they've all been, you know, they've been a family all together and they're just talking and they're laughing and they're just having the conversation and then they kind of go, oh my goodness, it's happened, you know, she's died. Yeah. But she was dying, surrounded by conversations of people that she loved, so she wasn't kind of like everybody sat and looking at her, kind of going, you know. Um, but it was at that point of uh, of being surrounded by people that she loved. You know, that to me, if you can be surrounded by the people that you love, then that's the feels like it should be the best thing. But uh, having said that, there are people that definitely, you know, wait until everyone leaves the room mm. uh, because the the pull of the people that they love is just too great. So they can't, you know, they know their love, you know, and yet uh, to actually make that final break they wait until for that one moment when somebody left the room, when they've been, you know, somebody's been there 24 seven for days and months, you know, whatever, the point where somebody just steps out to go to the loo, that's the point they go. It's kind of like, well, yeah, every death, every death is different. Every birth is different. You know, Mm -hmm. every life is different. Um, But I think the more that we can do to make, to understand what physically is likely to be going on. So you don't get thrown by some of the things like the changes of breathing and the death, what they call the death rattle. So there's a particular kind of deep breathing uh, Mm. that can be quite disturbing if you don't know what it is. And it can sound like somebody's in pain when they're not, or that they're struggling to breathe, they're not. But it's just, you know, everything is closing down. It's a very natural part of the process. If we understand that, then the point where it's happening, we can be wholly with that person rather than be scared of what's going on but we don't have we don't share that that knowledge there's nobody with us for the most part wherever we are that has that knowledge so unless you know unless one of our family has been a nurse or a doctor and they had that understanding or a funeral director or a, you know or a doula or you know so they've got that knowledge of what these changes are there's nobody there like the old woman would have been you know <coughs> to to support us and to kind of go it's all right this is normal this is natural and because we don't read about it or discuss it. We don't share those experiences together. People are there, you know, I've known of, of people whose who's loved one was, was having a really good death, actually, and, but then got to this breathing part and they went into a panic and ended up phoning doctors and getting people out and getting interventions which then couldn't do anything. The doctors knew that they couldn't do anything. They couldn't extend this life any further. But nobody had had that conversation with them to say, this is what's likely to happen at this point. And if you want someone to be there with you, they can be there with you, that's fine. But this will be, you know, just carry on what you're doing. uh, And that will be the best, most beautiful way for them to go, you know?
1: um, I've heard this from a couple of people, but it happened with a relative of mine who had deteriorated, uh, been in hospital for quite some time and started to develop develop, um, dementia and started to sort of lose uh, cognitive abilities and recognizing people and things like that. And the doctors had sort of said, you know, she hasn't got very long left. And right before she died, she had a couple of hours where she had absolute perfect clarity of everything. And it'd been a really long time where she'd been sort of deteriorating and like hallucinating and getting different, you know, things muddled up. And then all of a sudden, those few hours before she died, perfect clarity.
2: Is that something you hear a lot? Definitely. And it's something that, that health-wise, you know, so illness-wise can seem to happen as well. You kind of, you speak to people and they kind of go, oh, and she seemed that day, she just rallied and she was so much better and she had so much more energy and she went outside and she enjoyed a nice rum bar, bar, or she, you know. Yeah, so all the things that she loved, and then suddenly she died. You know we thought that she was getting better well again it's it's a, it if people hear more experiences or read more or talk to more people then that's not an unusual occurrence so it's how wonderful that they have that last burst if you like before they then die but to see it as oh it's all right they're getting better it gives you that false hope you know it's a false understanding rather than okay maybe she is but this could also be the last rally, if you like. This could be the last bit of, OK, this is what I really want to do. And listen, you know, if somebody is doing that, then what is it that they really want to do? If they want ice cream and it's snowing, go and get it. You know, Do, do whatever is in that moment, because for some reason that's important to them.
1: If someone comes to you either through the Death Cafe or, or personally direct who has been diagnosed uh, with the terminal illness or they are near the end of their life, how, where do you even start with talking to someone about that? I mean, it, I can imagine it's very much driven by the person, but how do you prepare someone for the end? Because like you say, it's so different for everyone. We don't have a finite way of saying, it's going to be like this
2: and everything's going to be fine. How do you approach that? I think so. From so The other strand of the work I do is as an end-of-life doula. So I provide an end-of-life support. And that very much is enabling that person to work things through for themselves, uh, because you can't say this is what will happen to you. She has got no flaming idea, you <laughs> know. You know, the doctors give a give a length of time scale. Sometimes people go for much longer than that. Other times, it's much shorter. You know, it's a, some people have a, a very calm and peaceful death in the middle of the night, and other people, it just they just seem to be fighting. Um, so there's no set. The way that you can kind of go if you do this, then this will happen, or if you do that, then that will happen. Uh, but it's enabling the person to have to work through their thoughts and their pre grieving, if you like, for themselves, so they can understand what that process is. So I'm now feeling really angry. That's normal. That's an acceptable thing to feel. Yeah, why wouldn't you feel angry about the fact that you're dying within this next t- whatever the time frame when you thought you had? X more years to live—that's a natural thing to feel. Yeah. So what you're going to do with that, or what? Yeah. So it's then it's allowing people to have that space to acknowledge everything that they're feeling and to manage it in the way they choose to. Because some people will choose to ignore it. Some people will choose to kind of go. I know, I know the diagnosis. I understand that. Yeah, I'm quite capable of doing that. But I don't want to be living with that. So I am just going to carry on living. I'm pretending it's not existing. You know. That can make it hard for everyone around them Mm -hmm. unless they've had that some degree of conversation to kind of go, I'm understanding it. I'm accepting it. I'm ignoring it. If everybody knows that's the process, then you're all on the same page and the family around can then behave like that with that person and then have space to to go through their process, which will be different, you know, Uh, but they need to, to have time and space to do that their way which may be the same way that may, they may be turning a complete blind eye uh, until the the point of death and then kind of go, Oh my goodness me. Um, For other people, it's, it's right. Okay. This is now we're having those conversations and we're now going to, it's all about family. It's all about spending time together, or it's all about doing that. Not the bucket list. The bucket list is a really has become this huge, um, You've got to go, have you, if have you never wanted to go bungee jumping before in your life, but suddenly now you feel it should be on a list of things to do. Why? You know, actually, I want to have an ice cream at the top of the keepers, you know, which is the, the uh, mountain just up here. Um, that, I want to make sure I do that again, because I really enjoy that. Or I want to feel, I'd love to go and see as many theatre shows as I can. Or, or you know, so it's, what, how do you want to spend this time? And mm. uh, however you want to spend this time, it's absolutely fine. I want to read all the rest of the books that are on my list that I'd planned to, but I hadn't to, because I'd be really annoyed if I never get to the end of war and peace or whatever, you know, it's a really personal thing. How would you choose? How would we choose to use our time if we knew we only had mm. set amount? Mm.
0: I think for, for listeners who haven't listened to the first episode with myself and Katie, um, my mum had a terminal illness. She, she had lung cancer and given um, a, a prognosis of, of, I think it was 12 months, but she 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 managed two years, which was which was brilliant. But she never came to terms with the prognosis. She never came to terms with the fact that she was going to die. And a lot of that was, it was just filled with fear. And I think, you know, it it was difficult to watch, as you said, Jane, when your whole family are trying to support you and watching you, but you know, the, the person who is dying just is struggling with it it's it's really hard so hearing you say about having those sensitive conversations with people who are you know near the end of life or you know going through palliative care I think for me there's a bit of sadness because I think that would have really helped mum those conversations those quite frank and open conversations to guide her would have really helped um see so I, I that's a bit of feedback from my my half but is that gen- the general consensus that you get for, for that role that you have being a, an, an end of life to Allah, that it is just absolutely invaluable
2: I think it's it's still a very new concept in the UK uh so people can't quite get their head around it so they tend to be more open to it after the event and kind of go oh I wish I'd known <laughs> uh, that that existed you know that there was such a thing that 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 somebody could hold our hands through this Uh, because you're you're effectively there as uh, as an outside friend you know so you're there you're not there to tell anyone how to do anything at all because who knows what's going to happen there's no right and wrong but you're there to enable and encourage people to have those conversations for themselves so that they then get to the place where they all feel comfortable now whether that's as i say whether that's then pretending it's not happening but then have been able to have that downtime apart from your loved one where you kind of go, come, oh, this is such a hard work to keep up. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's really difficult. And you need to be able to go through your pre grieving. You need to be understanding what that process is that you're going through at this point and how complex that is. Um, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's, phenomenal when you see it working when you see so I've got friends that, that have done more experience in the work who have had more clients if you like uh involved in that way uh, and to see how those relationships get built up over a length of time so actually you're you're not an outsider you're just you're somebody that anyone can turn to and I've had some people kind of use me recently in that way um, and then for them they didn't need it for they needed to know that I was there They needed to know there was somebody that could do that um, and that they could phone at any point or they could, you know, I'd turn up and meet them. But actually, they did it as a family. They didn't need somebody, somebody else. Uh, They found their way through um, beautifully, absolutely beautifully. Amazing family. But it's not not everyone. That's one particular family, you know, and everyone is different. Everybody's family dynamics are different. So I think it's part of for me, it's all I spend a lot of time talking about what I do <laughs> and about death and about funerals and about grief and, and the whole lot because the more people know what the options are, the more they can make the choice that's right for them. And to 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 have a conversation with somebody and kind of go, okay, I now understand what you do. I'm not interested. Absolutely fine, not a problem. But there's so little support generally at the point where you reach palliative care. So uh, even when the words are spoken, people often don't know what it means or else the words aren't said. So people don't realize there's been a switch in, ter- in terms of the treatment that their loved one is getting or that they're getting. Uh, so, But that's, that change has to come from us to encourage the medical professionals to have those conversations because it's hard for them because they're, de- they're faced with it a lot of the time. And suddenly they happen to have these in-depth conversations about uh, ending treatment or the death potential death or the, the prospective death uh, of a loved one with families who are, aren't are prepared if you like um, so it's really draining for the medical professionals that are pushing that place if you like if you happen to be involved with the hospice then people there have got experience and are used to allowing and opening up the conversations but the general public doesn't think in those terms there's a lot there have been a lot of books out recently so in, in the last few years while I've been um, studying if you like becoming more engrossed in the subject there have been quite a few books that have come out that are looking at end-of-life care uh, end-of-life support the journey for different people so my journey when my wife died or our journey when she had a terminal diagnosis or from lots of different angles um but there's nowhere in our lives generally that it's it's included so it's never there on a on a curriculum (laughs) it's not mentioned in school any which way around and yet How many? There is a there is a statistic about how many children in a classroom will be uh, bereaved at any one point. So we'll be trying to handle handle grief, Uh, and yet there's nothing. There's never any mention of it, Um, and there's nowhere in the workplace. There's nowhere. It's kind of nowhere that it happens uh, to actually set up those conversations and and now enable people to to voice their concerns and to voice their thoughts and just to to find out different people's ways of doing things or thinking about things.
1: It's it's interesting that the way that you've talked about it in terms of the two different factors, it's the person who's dying that, you know, knows their diagnosis. They're dealing with one thing. The people around them are also dealing with it. And I think when you're in the midst of it, you're only really thinking about that person, aren't you? You're thinking about what they need. Um, But in terms of two different factors, I think when Poppy died for me, I dive straight into the grieving element and I know we're coming on to grieving in a different episode, but I, I, I went headfirst into dealing with the grief side of it, but I never dealt with the death, you know, and actually what happened. And I think like what you've said there, it's not talked about anywhere. And I, I never really lost anyone that close in my life. So I wasn't prepared for it. And the, the impact that it has on mental health is so profound that you just think, especially now where mental health is, you know, everywhere. It's like mental health first aid at work and, you know, mental health this, and we've got to take care of our mental health and self-care. But death is such a huge part of life that we don't talk about, but the impact of people who die around us hits us so hard, so why Why is this not talked about in schools? I, can't, I just can't get my head around it. Like, why, why would you not talk about it from a young age? Why would you not make it acceptable? We've had a conversation with someone this morning from the LGBTQ community who was talking about exposure of the queer community to children. And like, you know, how it's important that they see that, you know, these people are normal people. And, you know, it doesn't matter what prejudices, you know, might be in their, you know, in the past or whatever. Growing up around these people is great and you should embrace it. So why are we not doing that, things like that with the fundamental parts of life? I know that's, like, that's the sort of question, like, you know, <laughs> some sort of ethics and philosophy question, but it just seems crazy that we're not talking
2: about it. It ties into uh, why children quite often aren't brought along to funerals or aren't taken along to see uh, their loved ones when they're ill. Uh, in hospital or, or in hospice or, or wherever or she- it's about shielding shielding the young ones because they feel that they you know that they couldn't cope with it they're too young to deal with it you know it doesn't matter what the age of a child is they will have questions and the more um we try and wrap up uh for them things so uh, there's oh, go up in the stars you know your nana's gone up to the stars um Nana's gone to heaven, which is fine. If, you, if you're a Christian and you believe in heaven and hell, then you know, obviously that's where you would want them to be. I don't know of anybody that said, oh no, it's definitely in hell now. Your grandmother's gone, no. Um, it doesn't happen, doesn't it? They all end up in heaven. Um, but you know, it, there's, there's a thing around shielding children uh, uh, and therefore avoiding the questions rather than actually answering the questions but because their questions are very direct. They don't have all of this other stuff that as adults you've developed and, and forced around yourself you know so they ask questions directly what happens you know uh, what happens at a crematorium you know what is that process going on and if you don't answer the questions clearly and appropriately to their age they will invent it they will imagine it and their imaginations will do so much more than and take things in a much um darker place than, than you might possibly have imagined but it's, yeah so logically At the point where anything around our families dies, so whether that's a pet or whether it's a a grandparent or whether it's a a friend or a family, that should be part of the conversation. So they get an understanding that this is part of life um, and they will experience it. And it's fine to feel sad and it's fine to be, children bounce back very quickly and uh, sad one minute and uh, bouncing off the walls the next. And then they're suddenly in this place that they don't understand because actually it's a feeling that they haven't got words for. Um, So to know that all of those feelings are fine, that you don't get stuck in one and do that for a length of time, Um, but then I think that's probably looking at uh, grieving in, in some ways as well, but it's for me to start off those conversations, there are books around, I can remember getting a book, accidentally getting a book for my boys in the library called Badger's Last Gift, and it was only at the end of it, as I was reading through it and kind of go, oh my goodness oh my goodness me, this is taught, badgers died, doesn't he? badgers died, <laughs> and, and I hadn't picked it up, I just picked it up as being a book to read, uh, and that was interesting to kind of go, well, we fin- do I finish reading this book, or-? and we did, we finished reading the book, and we had a little conversation about it, but at the point when my dad died, my sister bought them this book, and I, did, I, I never went back to it, I never revisited it, uh, because I then couldn't, because I knew what was coming, <laughs> yeah. Yeah but it's interesting you know there are increasingly books out there that will answer mm. questions or will will go to, uh, away towards answering questions from children but it's really important that they they do get listened to
1: yeah
2: uh, and uh, acknowledged you know their feelings their thoughts involved you know i always say to people involve the children in the funeral even if you've decided that they shouldn't be there let them know that they can do a photograph, they can do a picture that we can have on display, they can write a message, they can do, decorate something, they can send me something to read, they can, they can have a part in this. It's not something that they're, being, that they're not allowed to be part of, yeah. because as soon as they're not allowed to, then that becomes something that they've been kept away from, and that becomes a negative emotion rather than yeah, actually you have the choice if whether you want to come or not no i don't want to come that's absolutely fine no problem you can go and play with little johnny uh, oh i do want to come that's absolutely fine you know don't worry if i get upset or nothing gets upset uh because we'll be fine you know that so it's actually using using them as a, a as using every occasion as an opportunity but take, people tend to shy away from it when there's death involved yeah it's
1: it's just such a deep conversation isn't it it's like you know everyone has a different view on it and some people fear it and some people embrace it we do um, at the end of these um, podcast chain we do something called the final sip and it's uh, it's a bit like Springer's final thought but we've coined it the final sip and I guess probably asking you to do this is asking you to put your entire career in a nutshell (laughs) What would you say um, as a final thought for people out there about death and dying? Oh, you've gone muted.
2: At the hell? Oh, there you're back. Make time to ask questions, make time to I can see my internet connection went unstable at that point. That sounds slow, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) I'll start that again, just in case. So, yeah, I would say that it's about having conversations and being open. So to, even if it feels scary, even if it feels frightening or emotional, or you're not sure what's going to happen, allow yourselves to have those conversations with the people around you and see how it goes. Don't be afraid of the conversation, you know, because it's not going to make anything happen. But yeah. it will take away some of that fear. You make you make a good point about that whole.
1: It's not going to come any quicker, and it's 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 going to be there anyway. And I don't think I've ever really thought about it in such basic terms before. But you're absolutely right. It's mm. just needs to be a conversation to be had, doesn't it? Mm. Well, thank you so much, Jane. Yeah, thank it's, you, Jane. As always, talking to you, it's enlightening, and I could just talk all day. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, but we look forward to um, seeing you for the next episode, which is all about grief and loss. So I'll say goodbye now,
0: Vicky, and I will say go- it's goodbye from her and it's goodbye from me. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and we'll talk for Jane as well as goodbye from her. <laughs> uh,
0: uh, yes, and as as we said at the beginning, this is part of our mini series, so we will be welcoming Jane back back for the next episode. Um, if you do have any comments or any feedback or if you would like to partake in a strong tea episode, we are all ears and we welcome everyone to get in touch with us um, to let you know your, let us know your thoughts. So yeah, thank you very much for listening and we will see you on the next strong tea.
1: We certainly will and we'll also put Jane's website on the uh, podcast. so if you wish to get in touch with her about um, this or any other, celebrant related topics (laughs) you're more than welcome to we'll catch you again on the next episode bye
0: take care